One Week Season. What's up, OWS fam? Hilo had some brief technical difficulties during the beginning of the live show, but lucky for us, JM was able to join Xanamir for a few minutes before Hilo got back on. Hilo and X dive into the slate at about the seven-minute mark, so feel free to jump ahead to that point if you would like. Enjoy the show. Oh, hey, JM. Figured if, if Hilo's dropping off, I'll hop on for a little bit. So um, I was listening to the ownership projection talk with uh, Hilo in the background, which, by the way, one of the things I want to say there is I don't know how good my, my sound quality is because I just like ran upstairs to hop on. But um, when the, when you have this situation like the Kadarius Tony and Sterling Shepard thing, the thought process should ideally be not what do I think is going to happen, but do I think that this leverage is powerful enough for my roster and do I want to use this leverage in this spot? So if Kadarius Tony has projected for 15x, 20x the ownership of Sterling Shepard, it's not do I think that Sterling Shepard is going to have a better game than Kadarius Tony. Is, do I think Kadarius Tony is 15 times, 20 times more likely to have a better game than Kadarius Tony? And, uh, or 15 times, 20 times more likely to have a better game than Sterling Shepard. And then you don't have to use that spot as your leverage, but it's just recognizing, oh, here's a spot, as we often talk about, we only have to press one or two buttons differently than everybody else to really set our roster apart. So once we found one of those things, whether it's like one of the building blocks that I talked about in the scroll or something else, we can basically say, okay, this is the place where I'll pivot. This is the place where I'll gain some edge on the field. Or I talked about that Alec Pierce one in the player grid. And it's like, once you play that, you don't have to do much different depending on the contest size because you've taken away points from 40% of rosters and added them to your roster and you're besting all the other cheap wideouts if it ends up playing out. And so it's thinking about what is the what are all the actual steps here and what's the end game here. So as I'm looking down at everybody live in, in this Discord, I'm seeing most mostly people who were here last year, or I should say a ton of people who were here last year in Inner Circle week in and week out. So you guys kind of understand this, but we also want to recognize that a lot of you are listening on this for free for the first time or for the only time for the season. And so kind of help you understand that it's not about, we often see people either go too far under or too far over when it comes to strategy. And what we want to be doing is just recognizing, hey, look, we really just basically think through the whole thing and just say, okay, what happens if this happens? Well, now we're gaining this edge in this place. And is that enough? Do I need to do anything different from there? Uh, does this change my salary structure? Does this change kind of the, the trajectory of my whole roster? Or is this just like one thing that pulls away from one other player and now I need to think about something else? So obviously that's part of what we're trying to help you with, with ownership projections as well. And then with kind of everything we do and then training on that throughout the week. Sweet. Thank you for the context. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's about... Like you don't need leverage in every spot in your roster, right? Like you don't, uh, you don't, unless you're playing like the Millie Maker, which you could consider, you know, more leverage. You want, you do want more leverage in a bigger tournament than there's a smaller tournament, right? But like to JM's point, like Alec Pierce, it, it gives you three different points of leverage, right? He gives you leverage off of cheap receivers, off of Pittman, and off of Jonathan Taylor. I have no idea if Alec Pierce is going to, you know, score a touchdown this week, right? He could flop. That's not the point of this. Isn't saying that Alec Pierce is absolutely going to smash. It's saying if he does, like, that's the only piece of leverage. You can play a bunch of other high-end plays on that roster with Alec Pierce, right? Because you are you have so much leverage because of that one play. Um, 
particular types of leverage are different and you have to evaluate like the right amount of leverage that you want to apply for a given roster in a given tournament. And that's a really important piece, right? The amount of leverage you need in a in the Millie Maker is very different than the amount of leverage you need in a, you know, 500 person contest. And I think that two things that people make mistakes, and I said two, but one of them just flew out of my mind. So we'll see if it comes back to me as I go through this. But two things that people make mistakes on. One is, see how I just continue with the two because I have faith in myself. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I'll make something up if I don't get there. One is... Uh, <laughs> Um, one is not even thinking about the contest style that they're in, right? They just, so many, so often people put together rosters and you see that in questions people ask, right? People are like, Hey, what do you think about this player versus this player? Or what do you think about this situation? And it's like, is this a 200 person contest? Is this a 500 person contest? Is this a 200,000 person contest? And what does the rest of your roster look like? All of that matters. And the other thing, there it is, is that we, we have gotten so deep as DFS players into predicting what's what's going to happen in each game. And that's critical, but that's not the end point. And a lot of times we hit dead ends where it's like, you know what, the this game versus this game or this quarterback versus this quarterback, it's probably pretty close. If we played out this slate over and over and over again, it's going to be pretty close. And so if we waste all of our time trying to decide between these two spots, instead of just saying, like one of my three rosters this week will have Justin Herbert on it. And that was my first roster that kind of came together that I was like, okay, I'm definitely using this one. And the starting point for that was, okay, I literally have no idea if Herbert's going to be a better quarterback play than Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. All I know is that that's very much within his range of outcomes and that these guys are all priced pretty similarly. DraftKings pricing is always sharp. If you look at projections across the industry, these guys are all coming out in similar ranges. If you break down the game in the NFL edge, you see the similar upside in these different spots. And then you just say, okay, so I am going to build one roster around this. I'm not predicting what's going to happen. I'm just saying, if it does, I know that it can happen. And if it does happen, I want to build a roster that takes advantage of that, that gives me my clearest path to first place. And that's what a lot of people are missing is a lot of people are just building rosters worse a lot of people are just putting players into these nine spots and if we're instead building rosters and then thinking about how those rosters get us to first place we soar so far past everybody else oh hey look it's hilo he's a uh, former fighter pilot and a uh, lawyer and uh and a all-around great guy <laughs> that's a great segue yo hello hello there we hello, are hello. oh my god what a journey. We're selling the, um, the show tremendously well. Long. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Budget two hours and then just put it on 2x speed and you're good to go. Hi, friends. I'm sorry about that. Uh, only 140 people plus everyone that's going to be listening to this on, uh, on the podcast feed. No big deal. It's fine. Uh, yeah, so my phone, I was on my phone and my computer and my whole program just decided to stop letting me do any functionality with the VC stage. So that was weird. Um, but we are back. We're here. I think you guys were talking a lot about ownership and, and the importance of that. So we're not going to hammer that anymore. Anything to add or anything to transition us X? <laughs> I was gonna, we talked a little about ownership. We talked about leverage and the, the purpose of leverage and contest selection. I was going to say, uh, I'm going to start banning people in Discord if you just say, if you just ask a question of, should I play this player or this player? Um, it's fine to ask the question, you need to include the context that allows a thoughtful answer to be given, right? Like, Sam said, it said you mentioned this highly. So, like, you, we see it people saying, Should I play this dude or this dude? And it's like, that, that question is unanswerable unless you include more context, right? Like, or it's not answerable in any sort of 
intelligent way. We need to know the rest of the roster. We need to know the contest you're in. Um, like that's how you should be asking that kind of question. Um, Cause it's not just about which player is likely to score more points, right? It's about what player fits better on that roster and in that con and in the contest that you're entering. So if you want like one quick takeaway on how to become sharper at DFS, uh, that would be it for me. Um, learn to talk about rosters and contests, not just, you know, 1v1s or 2v2s uh, for players. Yeah, that's an interesting concept that I think a lot of people come into the game of DFS not understanding, right? Because why do we, or I guess, how do we adjust our process based on, on what? Well, the what is, what are our goals? One, two, what contests are we in? Three, what is our process? And then four, like what are our assumptions of the field's process? And we have to consider all those different things when we're trying to develop our decision-making process. And when I, when I harp on like game theory, or when I talk about game theory, when you think about just the, the, the theory behind decision-making is really what it boils down to. Like how can we train ourselves to make better decisions? And if we are making better decisions over time, that's obviously going to provide us with expected value. And then the other piece of that is we, we, we need a, a certain sample size to have that expected value be realized. And so what we're trying to do here is we're trying to train our decision-making process to place ourselves in the most optimal position, uh, in the most positive expected value positions to allow us to realize that equity over time. So this, this idea of game theory, you can just really boil it down into this, just training yourself to make better decisions. And what kind of, one of the pieces that goes into that decision-making matrix is our risk profile versus what our payoff profile is. If you had purchased my recent course this year on game theory, I go heavily into depth into why that is the case. Summing it up here without you know, paying too much of a disservice to those who have purchased that course, basically our goal has to change based on what the payout profile of whatever contest we're playing in is. Top heavy stuff like the Millie Maker, we have to be willing to accept a little bit more increased variance on individual rosters. Conversely, stuff like single entry, uh, small field single entry stuff where we know that the chalk is a little bit more chalky. We know that we can narrow down with a fairly high degree of certainty kind of where that field is going to be going with respect to roster construction. So we have a little bit less that we need to do to differentiate from that to, uh, to ship one of those tournaments. So that's kind of my game theory plug. That's kind of why we're here. We're here to be training ourselves to make better decisions. And all of that from contest selection to your own processes and habit patterns to your understanding of roster construction and the game itself, and then to ownership all kind of go into that decision-making process. So uh, that is why ownership is so important to us. Whew, that was a lot. X, I want to hear from you about your big picture macro view of week one slate, and we're going to rock from there. Oh boy. Okay, let's get into it. This is exciting. I've missed this. Um... So big picture macro week one, there's always a couple things in play in week one that we always need to consider. One, we know less than we think we do, right? Like we saw this actually just on Thursday night, right? You see a good example of how this played out. We know less than we think we do. 
we don't know, we, we think, but we don't know how teams are going to use players. What rookies are going to step into immediate roles and what rookies are going to be worked in more gradually over the season? How are backfield splits going to work, right? Like, we can make assumptions here, but there's a lot that we don't know. And we'll dig into areas we don't know more, right? But like, you know, Thursday night, Cam Akers all offseason was being drafted well ahead of Daryl Henderson in best ball drafts. People assumed he was the RB1. Um, I thought that was the most likely outcome was that he was the RB1 because that's what we saw the last time we saw the Rams play football was Cam Akers came back earlier than expected from injury and was immediately thrown into a bell cow role. Um, and so it made sense to me that that would happen again. It didn't, right? Like we just, a lot of the things we think we know are going to turn out to be wrong. Um, <clears throat> and so we need to be willing to embrace more uncertainty in week one. Uh, another element of week one that's always interesting is the chalk is not as chalky. Uh, generally speaking, right? Like right now I have three players projected over 20% ownership. Um, normally on most weeks, that number is like between five and eight or so. So, you know, we have the truck gets a little, the ownership gets a little more spread out in week one, which means if you're highly confident in a piece of really good chalk, like you're only eating, you know, 20% ownership instead of 25 or 30% ownership. So those are a couple of dynamics that are pretty much always true in week one. Um <clears throat> Uh, this week, I think what we're seeing is there's a real clustering of ownership um, at the high end of tight end. So, like, most tight end ownership is flowing to Kelsey, Waller, Andrews, um, Pitts, uh, and then even, like, Dallas Goddard and Zach Ertz. But, like, well over 50% of rosters in tournaments right now are projected to play a tight end over 4,400 or above salary on DraftKings. Um, and about 50% of rosters are projected to play a tight end over, what is that, 5,400 or above salary. Um, I think that we're likely to see almost every roster, or a very high percentage of rosters, play one of the premier running backs, like a CMC, a Jonathan Taylor, um, a Derrick Henry, an Alvin Kamara. I don't know if Joe Mixon really fits into that group. Maybe. He was the RB4 last year. Um, Austin Eckler, right? Like a very large percentage of rosters are going to play these um, these expensive running backs. Uh, and then it looks like people are mostly either sticking in the mid-range or paying down at wide receiver. Like Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase are attracting a lot of ownership. Um, but most of the wide receiver ownership is being concentrated in kind of the mid-range. So like, because you have a lot of attractive mid-range wide receivers on DraftKings this week. You've got like Michael Pittman, Marquise Brown, um, D. Higgins, Juju Smith-Schuster. You've got a lot of guys in that like low fives to low sixes salary range. And then you have some uh, really cheap wide receivers. Like a large percentage of roster is going to include one wide, one, eh, one wide receiver um, of 4,100 or under. And that's like Kadarius Tony, um, Watson, uh, what's his name? Daubs, Dubes, however you pronounce the Green Bay guy. Um, Wandale Robinson. So like you, you can see how this is like how this, the chalk build is coming together where one expensive running back, uh, mostly mid-tier at wide receiver with one value wide receiver, uh, an expensive tight end. And so, like, if you start plugging that in, you're going to be pretty close to around what I would, what I think of as the chalk build. And I haven't actually, I haven't read the end around. Did you post it? Oh, yeah, dude. It's uh, okay. Up. See, I like to read the end around before coming to the show so I can, like, feel super smart talking to Hilo about game theory, and I did not have time to do it today. But... <laughs> I don't, that's all right, man. I think you've been kind of busy with those... Uh... Previously mentioned uh, ownership projections. Oh my right? god! Like ownership that? projections. Just kidding. And <laughs> and kitchen torn apart, and it's a life right now. Okay. Yeah, d priorities, dude. The kitchen can wait. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about the kitchen right now, right? So. Yeah, yeah. Tell your wife of Hilo said. 
yeah, I'll, I'll tell her. <laughs> yeah, man. So the a lot of great things, a lot of great things that you brought up there. Um, obviously, working from the front backwards uh, in our kind of our search for what is chalk, because chalk is so much more than just ownership percentages. It's so much more than just like who, what teams are going to be heavily owned. It's how these pieces fit together on a roster. And, you know, I termed that a couple years ago. I termed that, that idea, that phrase. Uh, I used the term chalk build. It's how these pieces fit together on a roster because everyone in these contests is playing by the same rules. What governs those rules? Well, it's our salary cap of 50000 on DraftKings. So knowing that, there's a, a very specific way in which these chalk pieces and these chalk games and players and and just kind of the overall feel from this slate overall just tends to funnel things down a very particular path and for this week like Zandamir brought up all the perceived certainty is at the pay up running back positions uh the pay up quarterback positions because quarterback in general has a uh, a tighter range of potential outcomes um, when compared to a higher variance position like wide receiver or tight end. And then it's also being focused on these pay-up tight ends. You mentioned, you know, over 50, what, 54% or something like that uh, is expected at the tight end position. Ownership is going to land at somebody priced 4,400 or more. I like that cutoff that you used, by the way. We'll talk about that here shortly. Um, but it's it's so much more than just Hey, we the this player is supposed to be chalky. Like, let me um I, I term the the idea level one game theory. And I I put a little bit of an explanation of that in the end around this week. And that's this idea of like, oh, hi, this player is supposed to be highly owned. I'm going to move over to this player instead. Well, that's not really leverage. That's not really anything that is going to lead to an increase to your expected value over time. That is this level one game theory understanding where it's like player A, bad, player B, good, I'm done. Well, no, that's called a pivot and that doesn't really lead us to plus EV situations. What we can do is identify how the field is going to allocate their salary. We can identify what game environments the field is likeliest to be attacking and we can look for ways to smartly differentiate from there. The great example for this week that X and I have brought up already is, you know, the perceived value at the wide receiver position is kind of driving all of this. Um, and it's not just perceived value. Like there is value at the wide receiver position just because pricing came out so early. We have all these camp battles that kind of hashed out over the subsequent, you know, five, six weeks since pricing came out. So there's, there's all these reasons why the chalk build this week is to save salary at the wide receiver position and, de and dedicate it to other positions on our rosters. We're going to talk about all kinds of different ways to leverage that. We're going to look at some particular game scenarios where we can gain some leverage. And we're also going to look at some of the chalk pieces and identify, you know, which pieces we can actually have a little bit increased certainty in and which pieces we kind of just have this guise of certainty or the field assumes more certainty than is available in those situations. Uh, I dig it. X, that was an awesome explanation. Do you have any closing remarks for the macro slate? Yeah, I'll just note, I think that 
every slate is different in terms of like how many games look attractive. And then, you know, people tend to build around game environments, right, for the most part. And if you look at this slate, um, there are two game environments with game totals uh, that are over 50. And that's it, right? Like it's rel a relatively low total slate. We have some of the, the best offenses the league playing on the, the island games this week is, is normal in week one. Um, and so like one of the ways that I start to filter and look at things is I look at game environments and then I look at ownership per game or per team. Um, and I try to identify where there are teams that are projected to score a lot of points or games that are projected to score a lot of points where the ownership doesn't really align with the likelihood of that game or that team putting up a lot of points. Um, and some weeks that works and some weeks it doesn't, right? Some weeks the field is largely on the highest total games and I have to kind of dip down to like the next tier. Um, but I want to call it like, this week, uh, and I don't know if it's because it's week one and people are kind of like still getting their feet wet and like rethinking about NFL. And But this week, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity in some games that are some of the highest total on the week and are not attracting ownership like the highest total games usually do. And we'll get to dig into that when we start going position by position and talking about game environments more. But um, that's one of my first steps in research is looking at like ownership by game and by team to see where there's potentially opportunity. And some weeks, some weeks something jumps out at me. I'm like, yes, this is it. And then other weeks there's nothing. And I'm always get really excited when I see, uh, when I have one of those, like, this is it moments, this is the game where like the ownership does not reflect the likelihood of this game going off. And I'm excited to talk about that when we get a little further in. You know what X, I think right now is an excellent time to talk about that. That was going to be right where we were going to lead wow. into next. Um, yeah, you crushed it, dude. It's like we've worked <laughs> together before. I don't know. You know what game so, I'm talking about? I'm pretty sure you do. Oh yeah, it's in the end round. If you would have read it, you would have understood that it's like the most awesome game. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yes, there are two game totals that are separated uh, from the rest of the games on this slate. One is the obvious, where the field is pretty much on, but not attacking really in the most optimal manner. That's obviously the Kansas City and Arizona game. Mm -hmm. The other one is... The Los Angeles Chargers at the Las Vegas Raiders. This is a game with a 54.0 game total currently. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, or did, did it move? Uh, I haven't looked today. I don't know. It's up there. 53, 53 and a half last I saw. Anyway, the, the Kansas City and the Arizona game is a 54 game total. The Raiders and the Chargers game is right behind them. And it's the only other game with a game total north of 50 points. Yet... X, do you have the precise numbers of the like team ownership of those two teams? Uh, give me one second. I haven't actually calculated it exactly, but I'll okay. um, it looks like so. Chargers skill position players, um, and not including QBs. Chargers skill position players looks like that's a sum of about thirty percent. Um, mm -hmm. Raiders skill position players is a sum of about twenty six, twenty seven percent. And just for comparison purposes, so you know what. Like, what this means in yeah. context. Chiefs are about 40% right now. Um, Cardinals are about 30% also, but I would argue that I would rather, like for me at least, I would rather play uh, either Raiders or Chargers at 30% than Cardinals at 30% because they're a more narrowly concentrated offense. Um, I know where the ball's going more. But for example, like Tennessee Titans are, uh, you know, 20%, right? New York Giants are actually at like 45%. One of the worst teams in the NFL has the most ownership, which is just delightful to me. Um, you know, like, so it's, you know, 30% for 
for a team that is, you know, one of the top the top total teams. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think. Uh, they have the Chargers have the second highest team total on the week, the second highest game total on the week, um, and you know, narrow and narrower spread than KC Arizona. Um, you know, it's a three and a half point spread, whereas KC Arizona is like a six point spread. So you know, less likely to have a blowout theoretically. Um, so the the balance there of owner of ownership and um, and an opportunity is to in my mind that's the spot to attack right like you don't always need to find the game that no one's on you need to find the game that people aren't on enough as much as they should be this to, for yeah, me for my money this is it this week offering another uh i guess measurement or comparison tool what are you know on a similar slate like this where we have two games that are so far and above from a potential game environment perspective what is the like combinatorial non-quarterback ownership on you know those four like top teams in the top two games? What does that normally look like on a normal slate uh, that's not Week One X? Um, it depends on the slate, right? It depends if the teams are on by, how many teams are on the slate. It depends on how close some of the other game environments are. So like, you know, if it's two top games and there's you know the rest of the games are a ways behind it's going to be different than if it's two top games but there's four more that are only a couple of points behind um i would say off the top of my head what starts to look high is when you get into teams that are attracting 50 to 60 percent ownership do you remember there was that oh yep. was it it was um last year there was a week where it was i want to say it was dallas and arizona and that was like the top game of the week and both teams were like in the 50 to 60 percent range and the game just totally flopped um mm -hmm. and i think that was the game and so like yeah when you get like the one clear best game that everyone's on you'll you'll push up to like the 50 60 percent range so you know 30 30 percent is is pretty modest for the high for the highest total like i said like you know you've got giants at higher than that in um it's one of the worst teams in the nfl right like low is yeah. low is maybe 15 percent ish like that's you know that's like cleveland browns um where it's both the team doesn't look good and it's like a it's a you don't know where the ball's going um jets are around there you know like it's elijah moore and nothing else that people are playing so like 10 to 15 percent is really low so you know when you're in, when you can get a, a really good team uh on a pretty concentrated offense in like that 20 to 30 percent range like to me that's the that's the sweet spot so let's talk about that a little bit further and through a different lens if both of the top game environments on the week are expected to be in this 20 to 30 percent composite ownership for non-quarterbacks and that is about half of a standard week or a standard slate um, with you know one or two top games uh, similar to what we have right now. What does that tell me about this slate? Well, one obviously it has a lot to do about player pricing. That's going to very naturally spread across, uh, spread out ownership. Two, that tells me that the field is less certain than on a normal slate. What does that mean, or what is the I guess that is the causal factor. So what is the, the benefits or what leverage can we gain from that? Well, we can play those top offenses and not have to worry as much about playing them differently than the field. And then three, the third thing that kind of goes into that or why these percentages are so low this week is the uncertainty that is associated with these teams. You look at like the Chargers, what has changed from a offensive skill position player um, and a coaching perspective for that team? Not a whole lot, right? So the fact that the Chargers are right in line with um, another top offense uh, on the say the Chiefs, where we have all this uncertainty, 
and we you, it's basically Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, and then a bunch of shrug your shoulders, don't know dot gif, like <laughs> with all the other skill position players, right? So if that's the case, and if there is equal exposure to each of those offenses and less exposure to the actual game environment of the Chargers and the Raiders, to me, that says I can create a positive expected value situation by simply moving away smartly from the higher owned pieces of the Kansas City Chiefs and bringing it over to a position where I have a little bit more certainty about how an offense is going to look in the Chargers. And I don't have to make these educated guesses because I have a little bit more certainty, but I'm not sacrificing the ownership. It's this weird, like, if you picture having to make a choice between two equal range of outcomes projections, one we have more certainty with and the other we have more questions with, obviously, like the natural inclination is going to be to go towards the side of more certainty. What I'm saying is the field is not doing that this week, which is an inherent positive expected value situation. So absolutely love the Chargers and the Raiders game. To me, and I wrote this up in the end around, to me, that game has a higher likelihood of turning into a game environment that separates itself from all other game environments on the slate. We look at the, the Chiefs and the Cardinals, that's a 54-point total, healthy, healthy, but it's a six-point spread. And, we, we, oh, by the way, like three of the secondary or three members of the Cardinals secondary are going to be out. We have J.J. Watt, who did not practice all week, is listed as questionable. He might be out as well. Then we have Rondell Moore out on the Cardinals side. So that game is a lot more likely to develop into a one-sided affair when compared to looking at the Chargers and the Raiders. That said, there are smart ways where we can still get exposure to Kansas City because that is kind of the piece on that game where we have a little bit more certainty, right? And we'll talk about that here shortly. The other uh, expected, you know, field tendencies, higher exposure games are um, the Eagles and uh, the Lions and then the Packers and the Vikings. Those are kind of the four games that are going to attract the bulk of the attention from the field this week. And to me, the one that stands out the most is the Chargers and the Raiders. And that's the one that is appearing to get the least amount of attention. So we'll, we'll expand on that a little bit more here. But I wanted to go through the numbers and then tie a little bit of the theory into those numbers because I think it's an important um, thought experiment to work through in identifying plus EV situations without making suboptimal play. Yeah, And our goal is not just to teach you, you know, we're the good plays this week, right? We want to teach, like, purpose of this is to teach how we think through this stuff. I feel like we overuse the, te yeah, the teaching Amanda Fish metaphor, but applicable here. No, dude, it's on uh, it's on JM's background for his video stuff now, so we know that is we it really? use it ad nauseum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was too, dist I was too distracted by the jacket and the mustache. <laughs> That's true. I'm. You can't see it, but I'm actually wearing a, a blazer as well right now. <laughs> well done, sir. I'm not. I'm in like a Tom and Jerry shirt. Okay, I was gonna say uh, I'm anyway, wearing a t-shirt because it's like on, organs on fire right now, so that's delightful. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to Arizona. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that was a that was a long kind of introductory teaching thought process decision making kind of 
journey that we just went on, but I thought it was important to kind of kind of talk through how we can develop these plus EV situations. Um, with that said, we're going to jump into some positional stuff. We talked about how really the, the tendency of the field this week is very likely to be pay up at quarterback, tight end, and running back. So I want to start at the wide receiver position. Um, why do I want to do that? Well, that's going to fundamentally alter how we allocate salary. It's going to make what we're doing a little bit different. And then we're going to allow that to transition us into some other game environments. So when you're looking at the wide receiver position this week, X, are there any players that stand out as a build around piece to you? Something that we can have a little bit more certainty this week uh, that we can develop our thoughts and our flow from. Yeah. The, the most, the, the piece, the single player around who I have the most certainty this week, and this is probably not a surprise or a super hot take, um, but it's Justin Jefferson. Um, he is the single wide receiver who I feel the most confident in. And there are a lot of good wide receiver plays in this slate. Um, a lot of them are, you know, a lot of them are attractive. But I think the other top plays, you can all, you can poke some holes in them. And Justin Jefferson, I think, is really hard to poke any holes. You've got a fine matchup. You've got one of the highest total games of the week. You've got an ascending wide receiver who is incredibly good. Um, it was amazing last year and should continue to grow and do better this year. The offense added no one to compete with him. Uh, Adam Thielen is also good, but I mean, he's not getting any younger, right? Like this is going to continue to become more and more Jefferson's offense. We have a very narrowly concentrated offense. The Viking that always one Viking rule has been a thing for me for a while now because it's one of the most concentrated offenses in the NFL. Uh, and we have a coaching change to a coach who seems to want to emphasize uh, passing the passing attack more so than uh, running. So like everything to me lines up for Justin Jefferson to be the clear top receiver play of the week. And there's other good receivers, but I think all of like Devonte Adams and Tyree Kill are both on new teams. Marquise Brown's on a new team, and there's no one else on the field with him like who's any good. So like they, they could you know Kansas City could really easily focus on him. Um, you know like uh, Jamar Chase and T Higgins can cannibalize each other to the point where like. It could be that neither of them has a good game or that um, one, you know, it's hard to tell which one will have a good game. It's like the other top guys, there's a lot of good receiver plays, but I think most of the other ones you can knock holes in. And, and Jefferson to me is just like the guy, like he's the, he's the guy around who I have the highest degree of confidence. I could not agree more. And I'm going to add my, you know, high low spin on this. I am also lumping in Adam Thielen into that. Um, you mentioned the fact always one Viking. I joked around about that, or not joked around, but I, I alluded it's to not that a joke um, during every week. It's not a joke. This is not a joking matter. <laughs> but I alluded to that in my <laughs> I alluded to that in my best ball explorations. Um, and it, it is literally like this is one of the most concentrated offenses in the league. And now they are getting um, they basically had a uh, I will say a net zero transition um, on their defense. They did add a couple of pieces to their secondary. But the, the pressure on the quarterback is going to be an issue for this defense as well this season. Um, so that's going to allow holes to develop in their primarily zone defense. So uh, when we talk about, I see, I want to, hold on, I want to anchor real quick on that. I see a lot of talk around the industry on one-on-one -on -one wide receiver matchups. I want to just say real quick that the NFL average for percentage of snaps from a defense in zone coverage is about 71%. So all the teams across all, all 32 teams, the average that they're in zone coverage 
is about 71%. So I want to very like, I want to not like stamp out that thought process, but I feel like that is a very like, if you're new to DFS kind of thought process is what is a player's like a pass catcher's one-on-one matchup. And it's really not that easy. We, we can't just be like, oh, like if you think, I guess I'll, I'll say it another way like this. How many defenses and then how many defensive backs are in shadow coverage that you can name off the top of your head in today's NFL game? Three, two, maybe? Two or three. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's, I want to move past the idea of like one-on-one matchups because NFL, the game of football, the actual game in the NFL is played 11 v 11. And if you think about it like that, there's a lot more moving pieces. There's a lot of variant acts. There's a lot of communication. There's a lot of scheme coverages and stuff that go into play at a much higher frequency than a one-on-one matchup. So I forgot what I was talking about before, but I felt that that was important. Viking, that was important Vikings enough and Adam to... Thielen. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, yeah. All Best ball, always one Viking, uh, Adam Thielen. Um, yeah, Adam Thielen probably should have been a, a third-round pick in best ball that was going in the sixth, seventh round uh, for four months. So um, this is a player, a wide receiver, who uh, four of the last five years has finished wide receiver 15 or better in a point-per-game basis. So if he is active, if he is playing, we can – almost assume that he's going to put up an average of low-end wide receiver one or high-end wide receiver two points per game. So with that said, like that is a player that I want to have exposure to at 5.4 in salary that could very, very likely and very easily be priced at you know 1,500 to 2,000 more than that in as short as four to six weeks. So th- that is kind of what I'm looking for early on in the season is like, is there a way similar to like best ball? My mindset was like, how do I build a super team? Is there a way for me to build a super team this week? Well, the really the, the easiest way, and we're talking about like a, um, from the like varying degrees of certainty that we can have, the easiest way to do that is to play with more salary than the field is doing. Now, how do we do that? We do that by finding these players that are 1500 to $2,000 underpriced to start the season. Adam Thielen is one. I identified Kadarius Tony as one early in the week, but now we have this like weird nebulous, like unofficially official reports from Evan Silva that he might be the wide receiver four. Uh, so he's kind of off my list, but other players like that are like Brandon Ayuk, Juju Smith-Schuster, mm-hmm. Alan Lazard probably would have been on that list, but he's doubtful that for this week. Um, Michael Pittman is one. Yeah. So I think he's still doubtful, but he's probably out. Um, Darnell Mooney is one. So it's this range of like mid-range priced wide receivers. Again, another nod to how we can expect rosters to be built. That said, I want to kind of tie those two ideas because I harped earlier on the, the benefits of identifying the chalk build and leveraging off of that. Now, Hilo, you're talking about like all these mid-priced wide receivers that are... 1500 to 2k underpriced like how do i pick one or the other well my answer is it doesn't have to be one or the other i wanted to bring both of those up and and kind of integrate them together to show that there are ways to build rosters differently than the field is doing 
even have the same similar roster constructions that the field has and do it in a plus EV manner. One of the ways is targeting different game environments like we talked about earlier. Obviously, there's that salary allocation standpoint that we can um, we can change and allocate salary differently than the field. But one of the like sharpest ways to build towards a super team early on in the season is to identify these spots where players are just fundamentally underpriced and try and leverage that uh, to our advantage. So um, other wide receivers that are kind of in that range for me, Rashad Bateman could find himself uh, very shortly, you know, in the mid sixes uh, as the alpha wide receiver in Baltimore. Obviously that depends greatly on their overall pass rates, um, which we'll talk about here shortly as well. Um, Elijah Moore is a big one for me to start the year. This is a guy who is very, very likely to be priced, you know, maybe even up into the low sevens, probably, you know, in the mid to high sixes uh, here in four to six weeks as really the established alpha wide receiver on that team. There might be some hesitancy in the field to play him with Joe Flacco, but that's actually an upgrade if you look at the stats last year and kind of what transpired with Flacco at quarterback versus Zach Wilson, who is not ready to be a starting NFL quarterback, but that is a different story. Um, yeah, so this idea of like identifying these spots where we can we can have more certainty in, in a play because they are fundamentally underpriced, and that is a spot where we can look to generate some solid leverage. Um, anything to add on that from a wide receiver perspective before we kind of plow on? I think that? you nailed it, unless we want to come try and talk about just more, you know, more wide receivers we like. I'm also trying to figure out why our ownership projections and labs broke. I don't know what happened. They were up earlier now like FanDuel is FanDuel is not showing up at all and DraftKings is showing up but without any ownership this is the point projections and I have no idea why um so anyway sorry I'm trying to like see if I can fix that too no <laughs> well yeah while you do that I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. tie hopefully tie a, a bow onto this onto this idea <clears throat> now that we have an understanding of salary allocation field tendencies for early on in the season and this general makeup of pricing and pricing discrepancies for week one. What is a way that we can build smartly with both of those ideas that I covered earlier kind of combined? The first of which goes back to what X said at the very, very beginning of the podcast, where he said it's highly likely that you're going to see one wide receiver on rosters priced at, you know, that 4,100 or the mid fours and below on every roster or on most rosters in play this week. Why is that? It's because people, or I guess the field tendency is to carry this idea of like being underpriced a little bit to the extreme in the sense that, yes, even though a wide receiver might be, you know, 1500 underpriced, if he's priced at min price, what is that really buying you? That's buying you a, a wide receiver that should be priced at 4,500 that is now priced at 3,000. That upside profile does not really match a wide receiver priced at 5,200 that should be priced at 6,700. So that is, if you think about like the expectation of fantasy points based on price, it's not a linear endeavor. We have to think about Salary being a reflection of a player's floor, which is the lower end on their range of outcomes. But players priced at higher salaries typically have an extended upside profile or a ceiling. If you think about a bell curve, a player's who's a, a wide receiver who is priced at like mid sixes, which is kind of this meaty zone of 
a player could pop off for 35, 30, you know, 30 to 35 point weeks uh, if they get the right game environment. That's kind of the meat zone for that profile of player. If you think about that player, their bell curve is not going to have the same midpoint or median expectation as a player priced lower. So what does that mean? Can a min price player, a player priced at like 3,400, Randall Cobb, cough, cough, for example, just as an example, can he like hit 30 points? Well, maybe it's very likely going to be his 99% outcome where he's going to hit that outcome once out of every 100 games. Whereas a player priced in this, you know, 5,000 to 5,500 range that should be priced in the high sixes or low sevens, their profile, a 30 point game would be more like an 80% outcome game. So they're going to go over that threshold about 20% of the time. I'll just note, Randall Cobb had two, two touchdown games last week, last year, and did not sniff a 30 point game. (laughs) Exactly. I'm, I'm actually yeah. looking is, back now. Is, I was like, where did Randall Cobb last have a 30 point game? And like, I'm 2019, yeah. 2018. Ooh, maybe that's, yeah, 20, okay, 2018, he got there. September, so even September with, 9th, 2018, was Randall Cobb's last 30 point Let's game. talk about Randall Cobb real quick. <laughs> even with all the injuries to the Green Bay pass catchers, is Randall Cobb ever going to play 90% plus of offensive snaps in a game again in his career? No. The answer is very likely no. He's probably going to be in the 50 to 60% range, which is very likely going to be where he ends up in week one. So can he pop like for 30 points on 50% snaps? I don't know, maybe one out of 100 times. Exactly kind of as we were alluding to before with range of outcome expectations. Can I also note, like while we're talking about these guys, be super careful of the rookies, especially really chalky rookies. Like like a lot of these guys like Romeo Oops, whatever. Um, John Dotson, like Alave, Wandale Robinson. Um, you know, a lot of these, like a lot of rookies, are getting a lot of steam right now. Um, and I personally am generally very, very wary of uh, of super cheap rookies super early in the season because we, as fans and as DFS players, like to think that teams will like say, "Aha, this rookie, he's highly drafted. He's ready to get. Like, you're going to put him in right away." Um, and teams don't often do that. Right, it's actually pretty rare for teams to put a rookie in in a full-time role from the get-go, and I can just about guarantee that there will be mo- at least one rookie player who who is high, who is rostered at least like at least five percent ownership, um, who ends up playing like ten snaps because the team decides they're going to bring him along a little slowly, and so just be a little wary of those guys, especially at high ownership. All right, man. I think we, uh, in my best George Bush voice, I think we beat that strategery uh, to death there. Um, I want to move. <laughs> I want to move over to the quarterback yeah. position, and this is going to lead us into some game environment discussion. We just leave a really simple, um, like one really simple thought for wide receiver, which is yes, if please. you just if you want one, there's a lot of ways to differentiate differentiate a roster. So this is this isn't like the only way or the best way necessarily, but one very easy way to differentiate your rosters this week is do not play a wide receiver uh, under 5k. Like make sure all your wide receivers are 5k plus. And like you yeah, you know, that's just, you know, just setting sort of an arbitrary rule like that gives you a very simple mechanism that you can use to just differentiate rosters because most rosters are going to have a cheap wide receiver. And if just just simply doing that moves you in a totally different construction and it just gets you off of that chalk build. I'm glad you said that because I was alluding to that for, I think, about 10 yeah. minutes without actually saying <laughs> it. And yeah, I, <laughs> so, I appreciate that. Um, 
I got yeah, yeah, I got sidetracked there. Uh but yeah. That's what I'm here for. That I'm was to, uh, here to that help. was dope. <laughs> That's right, man. We are a team. All right. Uh all right, let's move over to some quarterback discussion. And it's gonna very naturally we'll we'll just kind of cover some of these game environments as we're doing it. Um oh, hey, ownership is back. Yeah, that said. That's so weird. Ownership six. That said, I, I <laughs> perfect, perfect. I want to hear uh, from you first, um, and then I'll jump in. I want to hear kind of what your quarterback pool looks like this week. Yeah, it's so. I will note that in the. I just want to note in the last few years, I very much become sold on the pay up at quarterback. Um, and you know, for a long time, DFS players were drilled pay down at quarterback. It's flat score. It's pretty flat scoring. Pay down at quarterback, right? And uh, if you played DFS for a while, you remember those those years and years of like common strategy. Uh, and now we have this field. Now we have this uh, this era where the top quarterbacks uh, are so far head and shoulders above the rest that their ceilings are massive compared to like the ceiling on a Jalen Hurts or a Patrick Mahomes or a Lamar Jackson. It, like you know, guys like Davis Mills or Kirk Cousins, they just don't have ceilings that can that can compete with um, with the elite tier. And so, I've generally been on board the elite bandwagon for a couple seasons now, and I think. I'm now starting to wonder if the pendulum has swung a little too far because I mean, what I said is true in terms of like ceiling and, you know, projection and like the, the elite quarterbacks are awesome. True. No, that's wrong. Um, but the pricing has started to get more spread out, right? Like you can get, you, you can get Trevor Lawrence for 5,600. You can get Dan, jo you can get Derek Carr for 5,900. You can get, you know, Daniel Jones, who's terrible, but has a legitimate 30 plus point ceiling for 5k. Um, you know, whereas Patrick Mahomes, 7,700, like the good quarterbacks are 7K plus for the most part. So I think that I'm kind of coming back around on that pendulum a little bit and being a little more willing to uh, explore less expensive quarterbacks to change the roster construction because the ownership has started to get really concentrated on the high end uh, quarterbacks. That said, quarterback ownership is something I don't generally pay a ton of attention to individually. Like, I don't care that Jalen Hurts is the highest project, the highest uh, owned quarterback of the week. What I care about is from a roster construction standpoint that that clump of expensive quarterbacks is very high owned because it means similarly to saying how you can differentiate your rosters by just not playing a wide receiver under 5k. You can also differentiate your roster materially by playing a quarterback under 6k, right? Because the vast majority of rosters are going to have quarterbacks ranging from uh, Joe Burrow on up. And so it just changes your construct. It's just, it's another tool you can use to change your construction. That said, like pretty clearly, the the elite quarterbacks do have unmatched ceilings. Um, Justin Herbert is my guy this week. I think that you know when you look at the quarterbacks that are projecting them for the most raw points um, that have the highest ceilings, like that's like Hertz, Mahomes, Lamar, Herbert, Kyler, Joe Burrow, somewhat arguably uh, Trey Lance is I think in the bucket of ceiling, which is just with a shakier floor. Um, like in that range, Joe Burrow actually projects for the least ownership. Or sorry, Joe Burrow. Justin Herbert projects for the least ownership of that bunch of quarterbacks is in my favorite game environment. It's easily stackable. Like Kyle, it's probably Kyler is it's hard to stack him, right? He's a running quarterback. Same with Lamar Jackson. Same with Jalen Hurts. Um, he's, uh, Justin Herbert is easily stackable. Like he's my number one guy this week. Um, but, you know. If I'm building a bunch of rosters, honestly, I, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna ease into this season because I'm doing ownership projections now and, and props, which are there's probably some Sunday morning props based on like injury news. So I'm trying to like not overwhelm myself on Sunday mornings. So I'm not doing like you know 100 rosters. I'm probably just doing a handful. But um, 
I want to have all of those top quarterbacks, but like, but if I had to pick one, uh, and the guy I'm going to have the most exposure to, hands down, is uh, is Herbert. And then down at the cheaper range, I think if I'm going for like the cheap quarterbacks, I want to generally go for cheap quarterbacks who uh, either a have shown significant passing ceilings in the past, or uh, have you know have a lot have rushing ability um, that we they can you know they can contend with guys like Hertz uh, if they get a really good game on the ground, and so that's guys like Jameis Winston. Um, that is uh, Justin Fields, even though that matchup is horrendous. Probably not playing Fields this week, but if I was doing MME, I'd have some Fields. Um, Daniel Jones, again, like terrible. Jones is terrible, but he's he's had multiple 30-point games in his career. It's like those would be the guys I'd put in at the lower end of the range. Absolutely love it. I was going to mention those three players exactly, Fields, Daniel Jones, and James Winston, if you're paying below 6K at the quarterback position. Why these are the quarterbacks that have legitimate 30 plus point upside, um, and that's probably closer to their 80% range outcome, right? So they can hit a, you know 30, 30 plus points, uh, about 20% of their games. Um, so that's that's enough for me to have interest. That said, you're not going to find quarterbacks down here that have like 45 plus point upside, like a Herbert, like a Mahomes, like a Lamar Jackson or Kyler Murray, the higher end, or I should add uh, Jalen Hurts as well into that discussion. Um, so when we think about what has to happen if I'm paying down at quarterback, well, we, we're basically betting on 30 plus points and we're basically betting on that 20% chance of that particular quarterback hitting 30 plus points. If that player is going to develop into a slate winning or a, a, a GPP winning play, what bet are you making if you think about it from that perspective? Well, I'm betting that it, a quarterback priced at 6K or below is going to match the production of some of these higher, or I guess we should say all of these higher priced quarterbacks. Because if a quarterback puts up 45 plus points, that you have to have that quarterback to win a GPP. That's just wham, bam, done. No more discussion. You have to have that quarterback. What we're doing by betting on these lower price quarterbacks is we're saying none of these top five quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, and Jalen Hurts, maybe, maybe Trey Lance will throw him in there. Um, I would argue that he probably does not have 45 plus point upside. What we're doing is we're betting on the quarterback that I choose sub 6k in cost is going to match every single one of those quarterbacks he's going to be on pace you know within three or four points of all of those quarterbacks to make it so I now have an advantage of where I can allocate salary differently throughout the rest of my roster so if you're betting on that the case you have to think about how the quarterback one that I'm playing reaches 30 plus points and you have to think about how the quarterbacks at the top end in pricing fail to hit 45, you know, 40 to 45 points to put the slate out of reach. How does that typically happen? Well, there's ways to bet on game environments. There's ways to bet on the touchdowns coming from different places. A primary example that we'll use, um, just because it's easy to visualize this week of how that could happen. What if, Pat, you know, what if the Chiefs score four or five touchdowns, but, um, there are two or three touchdowns either through CEH or spread amongst their running backs because you know there are probably three running backs in Kansas City that we can expect to get touches this week. That's one way for that to fail. How does like a Lamar Jackson fail? Well, Lamar, Lamar Jackson fails to hit 40 plus points if he's not rushing as much. Uh, similar with Kyler Murray, most likely with his pass catching weapons uh, that he has at his disposal this week. So when we start looking at the shape of the slate, 
we have the two primary game environments where three of the five top quarterbacks that we're talking about that have 40 to 45 plus point ceilings are playing in. So if three of those five are playing in the two game environments, you can bet on a lower priced quarterback to hit 30 plus points. And now you're just basically betting against two game environments. You're not saying that those game environments are going to fail. You're saying that maybe the touchdowns are going to come from a different place or, you know, any of the other number of ways that I just discussed about how these quarterbacks would fail to hit 40 to 45 points. So if you think about it from that perspective, it kind of gives you a better idea of how we can, you know, allocate salary and make plus EV decisions without sacrificing, you know, or without introducing suboptimal plays into our decision-making process. We're not saying, oh, I'm just going to throw, I'm going to throw Matt Ryan because he's priced at 5.5. Well, does Matt Ryan like have, like how often is Matt Ryan going to hit 30 plus points playing on Indy, an offense where we know Frank Reich is going to vastly change his play calling stances based on game flow? Well, it's probably going to take a very, very specific game environment for that to happen. You can build around that if you want, but realize that if you're playing a quarterback like that, you have to play him in a manner that paints the picture of him getting to 30 plus fantasy points. Just don't play Matt Ryan. Um, can I jump in and say that too? You no, know, everything Hilo saying uh, is really sharp. And if you're someone who uses an optimizer, as I like to, uh, I will share like what I would do. And so what I would do is create a rule that says like if my roster has Jameis Winston or Justin Fields or Daniel Jones, then I would apply like a negative, I'd apply a negative um, to the projection, like a negative 10 or 15% to the projection of like the receivers in those elite games. So like I'd, you know, to Travis Kelsey, to Juju Smith-Schuster, to, um, you know, Mike Williams. uh, And I would also boost guys like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I'd boost Austin Eckler. I'd boost James Conner. Like I'd be boosting the guys who are the most likely culprits for the, you know, for the, if the, if the scoring doesn't come through the quarterback, where is it likely to come from? I'd also be boosting some of the defenses, right? So like, I'd be thinking, you know, maybe the Jets are just completely non-competitive and that's why Lamar Jackson fails. And so I'd boost, you know, Ravens D. I'd also boost like Chiefs D, right? Like, what if with all their, the the injuries in their offense already, you know, what if Zach Ertz sits out and Rondale Moore's out and, the entire, you know, Cardinals passing attack is just Marquise Brown and some scrubs and the Arizona offense just fails. Right. And the Chiefs stomp them. Well, I'd want, you know, Kansas. If I'm not playing that game, then I'd want uh, I'd want to boost Kansas City defense. Right. So when I'm playing those low end guys to Hilo's point, you're sort of betting that those the high, the big game environments uh, are are failing in some way. Maybe the game's still point, maybe there's still points being scored, but they're being spread out in such a way that, you know, no one guy or no, or the quarterback at least isn't generating a huge score. And so you have, you always have to think of when I'm fading these really chalky plays, like what do I need to be true in order for my, you know, scenario to play out to where I can win? I absolutely love it. Along those lines, a guy like, we'll take one more example, a guy like Jameis Winston, how is he hitting? 30 plus points well he's probably passing for like five touchdowns maybe five to six touchdowns so what does that mean if i'm playing Jameis winston i want i I want him to be paired with at least one of his pass catchers maybe two and you can include alvin Kamara in that as well uh based on his role so thinking about how they're going to provide what score i need and how they do that 
is how we place ourselves and how we build successful rosters here. Uh, all right, that is sufficiently covered. I think any closing parting shots on either quarterbacks uh, or game environments? Yeah, um, I don't think there's anything else. Actually, no, sorry, no, nothing else for quarterbacks. Um, but I do realize that I talked about rules and labs. And since this is week one, I just want to make sure everyone knows that we have a partnership with Fantasy Labs, um, which, you know, I, I play a lot of MME. I have in the past. I've, I think Labs is the best tool in the market. It's what I use. Um, you can find it on the ownership section of OWS. Uh, we have a deal that gets you a really good price on it. It also helps OWS. So that's awesome for everybody involved. And I have some tutorial videos on like that you can find there on, you know, how to create rules like just getting an optimizer doesn't make you a genius DFS player. It doesn't mean it doesn't make you win all the money already. Um, you know, you need to actually learn how it's a tool. You have to learn how to use it effectively, right? Like it's uh, just like buying like a fancy power tool at Home Depot doesn't make you a contractor. You're probably going to cut your finger off. Um, you know, you need to learn how to use the tool safely and well. Um, so we've made some videos to help teach people how to use optimizers. Um, and if you're playing anything more than like 10 or 20 lineups a week, I personally believe it's helpful to have an optimizer, even if you don't you know, just run 10 lineups in the optimizer and enter them. It's really helpful to see like different salary combinations. Like I've locked these four guys. What are the different combinations I can play with around them? Um, it helps you see things that you might not see otherwise if you're purely building by hand. So I, I personally find it a tremendously useful tool. Um, and uh, yeah, I use it all the time. I'm a labs addict. The last thing I want to say, I'm glad, uh, thank you for throwing that in there because I totally spaced on it. Um, that is such a valuable tool to understand and you have to, it's 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 a tool so the the tool is only as good as the person using it right so going over how you know specific rules or how we would input or manipulate the data uh is is very very important so i'm glad that you mentioned that um the last thing that i want to talk about with respect to game environments is going back to the vegas and chargers game with the makeup of the Chargers, and I talked about how the Chargers probably have a little bit more certainty than some of these other teams, even in the high, you know, the, the main game environments on the slate. When we talk about the makeup of the Chargers, and I, I agree with you 100% in the sense that I, I love Justin Herbert this week. I love the Chargers offense. But with this idea of Justin Herbert. And if I'm playing Justin Herbert, again, back to the quarterback discussion we just had, I'm betting on him scoring 40 to 45 fantasy points, uh, which is going to put the slate out of reach. Say, if you don't have Justin Herbert, you're not winning a GPP. So if I'm betting on that, how is Justin Herbert getting to that threshold? Well, it's not primarily going to be with his legs. So I'm going to be looking to, personally, I'm attacking the Chargers heavily this week. I'm going to be looking to pair Justin Herbert with one or two of his pass catchers. And I think a very, very plus EV and leveraged way to do so is to do so with Justin Herbert and his running back, Austin Eckler. Why is that? Well, Austin Eckler obviously tied for the league lead in targets or in receptions last season. Uh, he failed in targets because, or he came in second in targets to Najee, uh, but he obviously had a much higher catch rate. But his red zone role is ex on the extreme side. He scored eight receiving touchdowns last year. And then now I'm going to layer that even further. We talked about the general field tendency is probably going to be paying up at tight end. We're going to get to that position here shortly. But how many Justin Herbert teams 
are going to have something funky like Justin Herbert, Austin Eckler, and then the tight end. Like, who is doing that? Nobody is doing that. Justin Herbert, Gerald Everett, and Austin Eckler. So that is a way to get exposure to the top, one of the top game environments, one of the top Vegas implied team totals, and doing it in a way that the field is highly unlikely to be doing. Why is Gerald Everett an interesting play to me? Well, one, Donald Parham has been ruled out. They just elevated a practice squad tight end to back up Gerald Everett. We know that the Chargers liked to utilize two tight ends on the field, but if we look at the state of the team, I would say that it's probably highly unlikely that they are able to do so in week one with a recently practice squad elevation as the tight end two. Layering that further, if we know that Gerald Everett is the kind of only tight end left on the roster, we know he's new to the team, but we know this is a very tight end friendly scheme. I would guess that Gerald Everett is going to have one of the higher route participation rates amongst tight ends on this slate. So all that kind of comes together. It's a way to gain exposure to, like I said, a top game environment, a top team, uh, in a way that the field is not likely to be utilizing. Yeah, I'll note it also leverages off of the, the expensive tight end play that most people are going to be gravitating towards this week. Um, right? Like, so you're getting off of the Kelsey, you know, Andrews, et cetera, tier. Um, and... You know, it, it allows I I love part like pairing pass catching running backs with their quarterback in tournaments because you're trying to capture every touchdown essentially, right? Like JM wrote about this in the player good about playing Trey Lance and Elijah Mitchell. That works. Elijah Mitchell's not a big pass catching running back, but that works because uh, of their prices, right? You also you always have to consider with the with the price of the players, what do you need? And so with Herbert, you're hoping the Chargers score four or five touchdowns. Um, if Herbert and Eckler together, you're now saying, okay, I'm going to get all four or five of the touchdowns. Hopefully, you know, maybe like it's one rushing touchdown and all the rest come through the air and Eckler catches one. Entirely plausible. Um, so you're getting away, you're getting, you know, you're getting the ceiling there. If that plays, if it does, if that doesn't play out, if that doesn't work, the roster's screwed, right? If the Chargers score two touchdowns, your roster's dead. Um, you have to think about like how it plays out if your scenario works. And so you're getting off of the chalky tight end build. Um, you're getting off of the uh, the chalky running back structure, right? Like you're paying Eckler is one of the highest ceiling running backs. Eckler is one of the lower owned ones. You're capturing a bunch of touchdowns in the highest scoring game environment, but you're doing so in a way most rosters that have Herbert are going to have either or both of Keenan Allen or Mike Williams. So, you know, you're kind of getting away from that common structure, um, which is absolutely wonderful. I would personally note that I think uh, for me, I think that I would need... Um, at Herbert's price, I would want two other chargers, and it and Eckler can be one of them, right? Like it doesn't have to be two receive two pure pass catchers, but again, for Herbert to hit his ceiling, like Herbert plus Gerald Everett is not getting there on its own, right? There's gonna if Herbert has it hits his ceiling, he's gonna drag someone else along with him besides just one pass catcher. Uh, whereas like a cheaper quarterback, you could um, or or one who runs more, you could stack with just one. Yeah, and the reason why I also like Everett in the Chargers stack is because how do tight ends generate majority of their value in DFS? They do it from touchdowns. So if Herbert is on a, you know, a GPP winning roster, he is likely scoring four to five touchdowns through the air. And if he's doing that, if two of those are going to his tight end, which we just established was likely going to play majority of the stack, snaps and likely going to participate in majority of the routes, that is a high likelihood um, 
not a high likelihood chance of happening, but if Herbert succeeds, it is boosts the likelihood of Everett succeeding. Mm-hmm. So uh, very important distinction there. It's not like this is going to work. It's if it does work, this is how I maximize my upside with it working. Uh, cool. Um, last thing I'll say on the Chargers and the Raiders is if Herbert is hitting a ceiling, it is very likely because he is being pushed to do so. How is he being pushed to do so? He's being pushed to do so by the Raiders scoring some points. One of those outcomes, obviously, is the Raiders are scoring their touchdowns on no. the ground. But if the if it's kind of this, if, yeah, right? If it's kind of this back and forth affair, we can expect that both teams are likely going to be passing at a pretty high clip. For that reason, one of the wide receivers that I um, did not mention earlier when we were talking about these wide receivers in the mid range uh, for this very specific reason. Um, is Hunter Renfro. He is kind of, you think about the perception behind Renfro right now, and it bleeds over from season-long and, and best ball drafts. He's kind of the forgotten man of the pass catchers in this offense. And if he is, how does, how does Renfro derive his value? Well, it's primarily through volume. So if you think about the game, the very specific game environment that we're talking about where Herbert is going to create a out of reach score it is likely in this blow up game environment upon which the raiders are going to be passing more and renfro is going to be like fractional ownership he's going to come in like probably between two three four percent somewhere thank there. you i, I uh, was so terrified you were somebody that. to play josh jacobs and i was like if josh jacobs no if sir. josh jacobs breaks the slate i'm losing there's just that's not happening nope okay. nope 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 Nope. Uh, I'm sad that Darnold's not on this in Plano starting anymore, so I can't play him. That's a, that, yeah. OGs will get that right. Yeah, I know. Uh, Darnold, Darnold's not playing. <laughs> Zach Wilson's out. Like, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, this what is going on? No Cam Newton? Oh, my God, dude. Oh, man. Okay, anyway. Uh, so that sufficiently takes us through, I think, wide receivers, quarterbacks, game environments. Let's clean up some running backs. Um, we're going to spend probably the next 10, 15 minutes talking about this, and then we're going to transition to take some questions. I know we got some beforehand, and if you have a question in real time, raise your hand via the Discord functionality, and we'll try and pull you up onto the stage to ask your question real time. So let's clean up some of these running backs. We talked about how we're highly likely to see the field allocate a good chunk of their salary to the running back position. We have Jonathan Taylor priced at 9.1, Derek Henry, uh we'll talk about him i want to single him out here shortly but he's priced at 8.6 we have christian mccaffrey who's priced at 8.5 highly likely to be the lowest price we're going to see for cmc for the duration of the season austin eckler we hit on an 8.2 dalvin cook is going generally overlooked at 7.9 but you start to get the sense that a large portion probably from joe mixon at 7.1 and up is going to you know, garner a pretty heavy combinatorial ownership as far as salary allocation goes. So with that in mind, what are some ways that you're seeing this week from, uh, I guess, the standpoint of roster construction and salary allocation to build smartly? Yeah, so I say from a, cons- like, from a construction standpoint, not talking about individual plays, if you just look at projected ownership across the band of running backs, it looks like most rosters are going to have one expensive running back, call it, you know, from Joe Mixon, you know, 7K up. Uh, and then one sort of mid-price running back from like the 5,500, 50, you know, from, let's call it 5K to 7K. Uh, it looks like most rosters are going to have that pairing at the running back position. And so 
clear, easiest way to be different here is to play either two expensive running backs or two cheaper running backs, right? Like, I don't mean cheap punt plays. I mean, like, two of the that mid-tier, right? Like, that 5 to 7K. Um, I think that gets you, you know, you can still play the, the quote-unquote good plays in that range, um, but I think that you get some differentiation from what the majority of the field is going to be doing by just either, you know, instead of choosing between CMC and Taylor and Derrick Henry and Eckler and Kamara and Mixon, play two of them. Or instead of choosing between Saquon Barkley and Aaron Jones and Najee Harris and DeAndre Swift uh, and Antonio Gibson, right? Like just play two of them on a roster. And that just gets you on an entirely different construction while still playing, you know, plays that are strong vacuum. I have a question for you, X. If I play a non-standard primary stack like Justin Herbert, Austin Eckler, and... Gerald Everett, uh, just as a random example that I don't know where it came from. If I if I play that stack, do I need to worry about this uh, kind of composition overall, you know, from a salary allocation standpoint? Do I need to worry about, like, pay, playing two pay-up running backs or two pay-down running backs? I think it depends on the tournament. Um, <clears throat> I, my broad answer is probably not that much, right? Like, Everett's projected for very low ownership. Herbert and Eckler projected for pretty modest ownership. Um, you're already getting with the individual ownership as well as the combinatorial ownership of that setup uh, is pretty darn low. So broadly, I would say, no, you don't. Um, if you're playing in the absolute largest tournaments like the Millie Maker, I would say maybe you think about it a little bit, but like broadly, you know, you're already, you're already at really low combinatorial ownership of the individual plays. And you're also already differentiating from the structure that most people are following by paying down at tight end. So I think that you're pretty pretty in the clear as far as thinking about what else to do with that roster. Boom. Case in point, there is not just one way to generate leverage. And I wanted to highlight that and kind of stamp that in using examples that we had pulled out previously in the podcast. So uh, appreciate that very candid and upfront answer. Um, we are moving on here. Are there any other running backs that you're seeing that offer a solid point per dollar profile um, with, you know, solid 80 percentile outcomes. Yeah, like in a vacuum, a few guys that I think are going somewhat overlooked. Um, I mean, Dalvin Cook has a ceiling that is almost like the highest ceilings on the slate belong to Christian McCaffrey, Derrick Henry, and Jonathan Taylor. Um, Alvin Kamara, sorry, uh, not, uh, Austin Eckler slightly behind them. Then you've got a big pile of running backs who all have ceilings kind of in the 30 range. Um, and of that big pile of running backs with ceilings in the 30 range, the two that are projected with the lowest ownership are Dalvin Cook um, and James Conner. And so Dalvin Cook offers you exposure to one of the higher scoring games in the slate. He offers you leverage off of a, of a very popular Justin Jefferson. James Conner offers you exposure to one of the highest games, the highest total games in the slate, or the highest total game in the slate. And he offers you leverage off of an extremely popular Marquise Brown and, and probably a pretty popular Zach Ertz if Ertz ends up playing. Uh, if Ertz gets ruled out, uh, I mean, Connor's ownership is likely to rise between now and tomorrow morning anyway because of Rondale Moore being out. But um, if Ertz gets ruled out, we could see a lot of steam on the rest of the Arizona players because there's just so few of them left, even though that increases the chance of the game just being non-competitive. Um, another one, uh, call to, so shout out to JM here, is Elijah Mitchell, who's, who I've projected for like 3% ownership right now. Um, he's cheap. He's 5,400. He's below the range of where most people are spending for any running back this week. Uh, he is, you know, he was a guy 
he's healthy. He's the guy for the 49ers. If we look at what they did last year and, you know, he's, I take a prop bet on him for over 14.5 carries, uh, which is sort of an, I know better prop bet where his, you know, his projection is like 15 carries that I have for him, but in most of his healthy games, he saw 17 plus. So like, I think that, you know, a, a 17, 18 plus carry game is easily within the range of outcomes for Elijah Mitchell, uh, you know, hundred plus yards and a touchdown uh, gets you, you know, over 20 points which is like 4X and, you know, a multi-touchdown game is easily in the range of outcomes. I know we don't try to talk a ton about individual players in this pod. We want to focus more on like strategy and the the macro environment of the slate. But I would say that Elijah Mitchell is very much up there. And then AJ Dillon, and the, like, this is a risky play, um, but the reality is we don't know how the Packers are going to deploy their offense this week and this year. Um, you know, Devontae Adams is gone, their main target hog. Uh, Alan Lazard, the expected wide receiver one, is out, leaving a wide receiver, uh, a pass-catching group of Sammy Watkins, uh, Randall Cobb, right? Sammy Watkins, banged up, often injured, kind of crappy. Randall Cobb, used to be good, kind of crappy and old. Romeo Dobbs and Christian Watson, both rookies. We know Aaron Rodgers and this thing with rookies. Uh, Robert Tanyan coming back from a season-ending injury. So, like, that pass-catching court does not instill a lot of confidence, and generally speaking, when I hear teams say like, oh, two running backs in the field at the same time, like it usually doesn't come to pass. But I could really see it for the Packers here just based on how short they are with the rest of their offense. And people are looking at Aaron Jones, who's attracting, you know, a tons, but a decent amount of ownership. And, you know, Dylan, I think is Jones is the better pass catcher, but I think Dylan is probably going to have more carries than Jones. And if the touchdowns go Dylan's way instead of, instead of Jones's way, um, you know, that's like, I could see that playing out. I've also seen people talk about playing them both on one roster, which is sort of the capture all the touchdowns approach, which I think is viable in small field. I don't think I'd do it in a big tournament. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, if you want to get cheaper at, at running back than most people are playing, I like, I like Mitchell a lot. I like Dylan in, in, and like in large field stuff for Dylan, I think is, is where, I'd, where I'd keep him. I don't think I play Dylan in small unless I was pairing it with Jones. There's a couple other guys in that same range that I want to, I think we'd I'm be remiss if we didn't Pierce. mention. Um, okay. No, sir. <laughs> he is. No, sir. I'm hard Clyde pass. Flair, right? uh, no. Yeah. Uh, at 5.4 is leveraging a lot of uncertainty with respect to Kansas City. We already talked about the probably percentage chance of that game is either a shootout or the Kansas City Chiefs just stomping Arizona. So he kind of plays mm -hmm. into both of those game environments. David Montgomery oh, yeah. is a guy that is completely being left for dead by the best ball and season-long field. Um, what we see is typically early in the season, those tendencies and those biases uh, carry over into DFS play. So Dave Montgomery is legitimately a a player on the Bears who is likely, if not, I guess we'll say it's possible, if not probable, that he ends the season amongst the top three um, players on Chicago as far as targets go. So he could end the season, you know, second or third on Chicago in targets um, if he is getting the type of snap rates that we that was shown us via whatever RB1 was playing with the ones in preseason. The fact that he played 19 of 21 or 22 snaps with the ones in the third preseason game is very telling to me. If he is, if he is going to be on the field uh, 75 to 85% of the time, 
there's going to be with the makeup of that game and the pass rush of San Francisco and the shitty offensive line of Chicago, where it's likely that he's going to see a, a good amount of checkdowns. We hammered the over on his receiving props. Um, and that is, uh, you know, an, oh, by the way, that's a, that's a, that's a teaser. If you're not in there, uh, we're <laughs> Dave Montgomery, uh, over on receiving props. Um, so if he's getting a bunch of catches, he's priced at 6k. If he is, you know, finding eight to 10 targets and he's getting in the end zone with one of them, um, he has a path to 25 plus fantasy points, which could be very meaningful at that salary. Um, another guy is Antonio Gibson, who is another guy who's, um, kind of being left for dead by the best ball and the season long crew. Um, but what happened, you know, the very, very unfortunate events um, with Brian getting shot in the leg uh, a couple weeks ago has left Gibson kind of as the primary running back in Washington. Um, and we look at the, the, com the composition of that game. It's pretty fairly evident that we can expect Washington to kind of lean towards um, the ground for as long as they can here. Uh, so that is a guy who we could see get 20 to 22 carries, a couple of targets, and could provide some value at 5.8. The last guy I'll mention in this range is Travis Etienne. Uh, we have James Robinson coming back from his Achilles tear. We know the numbers on Achilles ruptures and tears and that ligament damage with respect to running backs. We know how hard it is for them to come back from that. And we know that the general field tendency is they're just seeing all this certainty thrown out by the coaching staff in Jacksonville about, hey, Robinson is good to go. He's going to see half the carries. He's the, you know, the backbone of our team, all this stuff. Well, it's like, okay, like that matters to me until it doesn't. And if that game environment turns into something where they need some more explosion out of the backfield, it is highly likely that Travis Etienne is going to be that guy. Uh, so he could be a sneaky guy priced only 5.6 that could provide something in the range of 15 to 18 carries and a handful, you know, six to seven targets in that range. Uh, that's kind of it. The running back position um, from what I've seen kind of hammered that any parting shots there before we move on. And then, yeah, I would just note that um, of that group, Gibson is projected for about double the ownership of any of the other guys that we've talked about. So just, you know, his ownership is, he's not chalk, right. But uh, just, just keep that in mind when thinking about the lower range pivots. I do like Gibson this week, right? Like, yeah, and I that offense has few weapons. I, I think that is a um, a nod to the expected level of ownership of their defense, which we're going to talk oh, to here God, shortly as well. So, uh, definitely keep that in mind. If you are playing Gibson, don't pair him with his with Commanders cool. defense, please. Uh, just don't. Just don't play Commanders uh, defense. Okay, tight end. I know. By the way, I took a prop <laughs> yeah, bet yeah, yeah. on um, a season long bet on Gibson on under on rushing touchdowns, and I felt. Re and as the preseason progressed, I was like, "Oh, this is a shoe in. Um, Robbins is going to be the starter." And then he gets shot. And it's like, well, you know, obviously there's more important things in the world than a prop bet, right? But like, what a what a way to. When I go back to, I always like like to look at like why did this bet either hit or not hit. I always sort of do like a retrospective and like, you know. Guy in front of him got shot in a carjacking is a weird reason to write down for why a prop bet missed. An excellent uh, highlight of yeah. variance in the game yeah. of football. <laughs> it's like, similar to uh, to Calvin Ridley last year. It's like, who thought he was just not going to play football? That was not in people's projected range of outcomes. But anyway, uh, yeah. we digress. Talking about the tight ends, we know that there's going to be some heavy ownership um, from the clump of tight ends that are priced at 4400 and above. That's Mark Andrews, that's Travis Kelsey, that's Kyle Pitts. George Kittle is questionable slash doubtful. Um, he's listed as questionable, but I think I would 
label him probably closer to doubtful. Yeah. Um, and then we have Darren Waller, TJ Hawkinson, Mike Kosicki, Dallas Goddard, um, all the way down uh, to Zach Ertz at 4.4 that we talked about. Um, with that said, and with that understanding, what are some ways that you're approaching the tight end position from a macro perspective? Yeah, so tight end is really a decision of do you think that Kelsey and Andrews both fail? Um, because they have the highest ceilings in the position, right? And Pitts, I guess, has a more his ceiling's a little more on the theoretical side still today, still currently, but I think we'll he'll see it plenty during the season, but this is probably not the game for it. Um so really you're betting like not, not do they fail, but do they just not separate? Like if Kelsey and Andrews put up twenty you're fine not playing them. If Kelsey and Andrews put up 30 to 35, it might be hard to catch to catch up to a roster that plays them if you don't play them. Um, so similarly to like the quarterback uh, discussion, right? Like if you're play, if you're not playing Kelsey, you may want to consider, well, do I want another chief instead? I don't think you have to have a chief on every roster, but I think you might want to think about that as like, okay, if I'm not, and again, this is how I do it in labs. If, if roster does not have Travis Kelsey, boost the projection of like Juju Smith-Schuster, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Because essentially I'm betting that Kelsey doesn't have a blow-up game, which means I'm betting either that Kansas City fails, possible but unlikely, or that the, the production just flows away from Kelsey towards other guys. So first recognize that that's the bet you're making, essentially. Um, where I think there's some interesting opportunities at tight end, I think... Zach Ertz, I think, with Rondale Moore out, I think Zach Ertz's his ownership is going to be sc- is going to be shooting up unless we get some news. We did get some news that he's questionable, and his coach said something to the effect of like, "Gee, I sure hope he can play the whole game," which is not exactly you know res- uh, a vote of resounding confidence. If that comment, if that tend- if that looks like it's causing people to shy away from Ertz, like I really like Ertz this week in a vacuum. Um, if that comment causes people to shy away from Ertz, then I would be super interested. Um, of the of the tight ends who really have like highly competitive ceilings, TJ Hawkinson is attracting the lowest ownership. And I think that people are underrating how good the Lions offense is going to be this year. And I know that it's Jared Goff, but they have Amon Ross St. Brown. They have TJ Hawkinson. They have DeAndre Swift. Uh, they have um, DJ Chark coming back and healthy. And something that people don't always appreciate about Jared Goff is that Jared Goff is actually a pretty good quarterback when he's not under pressure. Uh, when it's, you know, when he gets pressured, he just, the wheels come off and he's atrocious. But like Jared Goff has historically been a good quarterback when not under pressure. And the Lions now have one of the better offensive lines in the NFL, or they're projected to have per, um, you know, Pat Thorne over at ETR, who does really good uh, offensive and defensive line evaluations. Um, if that's true, if it turns out their offensive line is in fact good, then Jared Goff could have a, and the Lions offense as a whole could have a really good season. And, you know, everyone's betting on Amon Ross St. Brown um, in, in best ball, right? Like, and just in, in ownership this week as well, you can see that playing out where people are betting on St. Brown because he had that ridiculous finish to the season last year. And he's, he's going to have a good year. I'm almost certain. Um, but Hawkinson is a guy whose ceiling is close enough to be in the same neighborhood, at least as like Kelsey and Andrews, like, Hawkinson could hit his ceiling and Kelsey hits his ceiling and Kelsey's ceiling is higher, but Hawkinson could be close enough that like you're essentially keeping pace with Kelsey rosters. If you don't want to go that route, if you want to go down further, I like Gerald Everett a lot for that exposure to that great, that best, the best game environment in the slate. Um, <clears throat> and I also am kind of interested in Robert Tonyan, uh, who I just think that like the Green Bay offense is so barren right now. 
that uh, that I think that Tanyan is an interesting option as one of the few like guys who is sort of in the sweet spot between like he clearly has Aaron Rodgers' trust, but he's also not ancient like Randall Cobb is. So like I could see you know Tanyan is a guy I could see getting a lot of work here um, as a trusted target um, who is not you know older than dirt. And that's really kind of it for tight end for me. Um, it's the expensive guys. If I'm going cheap, if I'm going under Ertz's price, I'm going to either Tanyan or Everett. I love that you brought up Tanyan. Um, I I was very heavy on Tanyan in uh, best ball. Had sixteen percent. Yeah, me too. Ended up right. with him. Uh, yeah. So, and also there was an interesting locker room talk. Uh, there was a an interview of Aaron Jones this week. Um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, where the reporter asked him, like, who is who are the who the masses will say who are the masses sleeping on on your team? And he pointed at Robert Tanyan's locker. So that was an interesting thing to me that stuck out. Um, you know, we're fully into the realm of of just conjecture and speculation at this point, but. Um, yeah, if if that game environment is going to be one where the Packers are going to be forced to be passing, which I think they're going to start trying to control the game on the ground, they're going to start trying to manage the you know number of offensive plays that Minnesota is allowed to run. Um, how long they're able to continue that game plan is likely up for debate. So there's a lot of different game environments where I could see Robert Tanyan succeeding this week. Um, I really like him. You know I like Darren Waller because of my exploration of um, the Chargers and the Raiders game. TJ Hawkinson was a very interesting one that I think you brought up. Um, and then Zach Ertz, uh, again, I was extremely high on him uh, just two days ago. We'll have to see what happens with his ownership because I was very high on him because of the perspective of him being low-owned. Um, the last guy, obviously, I mentioned him earlier, is Gerald Everett. That's kind of my... Uh, narrowed tight end pool. I will have some Andrews. I will have some Kelsey. But if we look at the perceived certainty on both Baltimore and on Kansas City's offenses, it starts with their tight ends. So it starts with Andrews and it starts with Kelsey. If that's going to be the case, I could see those two guys. And and then considering the makeup of um, the slate this week, I could see if there were two tight ends that are going to garner more ownership when first kick happens than we were expecting. It is probably those two guys. So um, with that said, and with the kind of premise that we don't know, you know, my I threw the you-know-nothing Jon Snow gif uh, from Egret and Game of Thrones into my end around. And that is kind of the overall sense that I want you guys to take away this week of week one, and then probably into the next three or four weeks, is these teams... There's been a lot of change going on. And if the field is going to be certain in some places where I think that they're, um, they're overweighting their certainty, I'm going to look to leverage those situations where I can. And primarily for me, just based on the state of this slate, that is with Mark Andrews and Travis Kelsey. So that said, I'm going to have um, a lot of Naked Lamar. I'm going to have a lot of um, Rashad Bateman. I'm going to have some Devin Duvernay. Um, I'm going to have a ton of CEH. I'm going to have a ton of Juju Smith-Schuster, and I'm going to have a ton of Marquez Valdez-Scantling uh, to kind of leverage the certainty or the perceived certainty in those two situations. God, that was a painful sentence to um, listen to. Hearing anyone... Yeah, I'm going to have... I'm going to have a ton of CEH and a ton of Marquez Valdez-Scantling. It's like, oh God. Um, but you're right, right? And that's the reason... But here's the thing. For a good tournament roster, there has to be a little bit of oh God in there, Right? 
like if there wasn't then you'd just be building the chalk build so you know you have to have a bit of like oh god what is this um and the, those and those make sense all right, defense we're gonna clean up it or we're gonna clean it up real quick the probably the top defenses on paper this week and again that means a little bit less than it does on a standard week coming into the season so much can go wrong on defense um at the beginning of a season you have i talked about the high level of nfl um or i guess of of zone coverages in the nfl across kind of blanket statement well what happens in zone coverages you're relying on communication and I guess we'll call it feel or knowing where you expect other members of your defense to be. So if that's the case, those are the things that break down in zone coverages in the beginning of the year. That's what we see lead to these broken plays, busted coverages, all this variance thrown in. But on paper, probably the top, de top defenses on the slate are the Ravens, the Saints, and I would throw Miami in there as well. Um, the ownership is flowing to the commanders. I could see the field trying to utilize this idea of level one game theory and pivoting off of the commanders to the Jaguars at the same exact price. Um, so I'm almost trying to strike those two defenses off of my list completely um, and just paying $100 more for the Dolphins, even going up $200 more to the Patriots who are just a Bill Belichick team and can always generate turnovers and such. Um, but those are kind of where I'm focused uh, from a defensive standpoint. You can throw in the 49ers. Uh, if you so choose, um, I just think that uh, for me, that's where I'm at. Ravens, Saints, and Miami. Yeah, this is interesting. Like defense, we see similarly to how quarterback, right? Like for a long time, the common strategy in DFS was you pay down at quarterback because the position has relatively flat scoring. Um, and that's evolving, right? That's that's evolved now, I'd say, right? Like if you look at the highest projected ownership for quarterbacks this, this week, it's the expensive guys, um, as it should be. And then defense, though, we've also seen the DFS community getting uh, essentially like it's been drilled into the DFS community. You pay down at defense because defensive scoring is unpredictable. So why spend up? Um, and that that lesson apparently has uh, has taken root and is not has not evolved yet. So when I go look at the highest projected ownership for defenses that I have currently, the top nine are twenty six hundred dollars or below on DraftKings. People are clustered around the cheap defenses. Commanders, Steelers, Dolphins, Bears, Lions, Giants, Jets, Vikings, Jaguars. I personally, look, defensive scoring is unpredictable. And, you know, bad defenses and bad matchups can occasionally have big games. But I would argue that out of that, those, that list of nine defenses, there is only one that you should feel even decent about playing, uh, which is the Dolphins because the Patriots' offense is, you know, it looked, it's looked a little shaky in preseason. The Dolphins' defense is really good. We have a long history of the Dolphins, or the Patriots, really struggling in Miami. Um, and the Bears, because Trey Lance is excite exciting rookie, but he is also young and raw and mistake-prone. Um, and so, you know, Bears, I think, are in play. But... Like the, the similarly to how the the, just the easy differentiation uh, at wide receiver is don't play wide receiver under you know 5K. You could do the same at defense and say I refuse to play a defense under 2600 um, this this week. Like it's Dolphins are up for me and all my rosters. Um, you know the defenses that are the yes it is hard to predict to predict defensive scoring right we know that but. Um, we know what defenses in the slate look good, and we know what defenses are going up against, uh, you know, teams that look shaky. Uh, so, you know, Dolphins are, are certainly on that list, but like Saints, 
uh, 49ers, Titans. I mean, Daniel Jones is bad. He is bad. Bengals, when Mitch Trubisky is bad, he is bad. Um, Chiefs, when Kyler Murray is bad, he is bad. And the Arizona Cardinals have, like, no weapons this week. Um, Colts, right, going up against the awful Texans. Ravens going against the awful Jets. Uh, like, there's, like, it's hard for me not to see one of those, like, higher-end defenses putting up a big game, like 15 to 20 points or more. And, you know, it, it, it could not happen because defensive scoring is highly variant. But I'm always going to run away from ownership of defense. Always, always, always. And, like, I like I would X out the commanders. I, w- I would X out every $2,600 defense uh, and below, except for the Dolphins, personally. Um, I just don't want to be part of those defenses at ownership. I'd, I'd only want to play those if they're not being, if people aren't playing them. I dig it, man. With that... I think we're going to open it up to questions. We have gone extremely That's long, crazy. but um, there were some, <laughs> there were some, oh, by the ways, and some, um, some points of emphasis that I wanted to throw some, in there this week uh, to ensure that, and some technical challenges. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so with that, there anybody want to raise their hand and come up on stage, ask questions. Um, in the absence of that, um, I'm going to ask for Aaron's help to tidy up any questions that we did not cover that were asked in chat hey guys uh i have a couple guys with their hands up right now um sent requests but um it's they've been up since the beginning of the show so we'll uh see if they want to jump on stage but i have some questions ready to go that came in through the chat i'll fire off to you guys and uh um you guys can jump into them so this question is from no no 33 to reading hilo's marketplace course anatomy of a millie maker see a lot of this week's building around game environments however the course shows that bring backs are negative ev so how are you handling the situation situation since you build around a game environment but not able to bring anyone back with it okay so this is an interesting so i want to answer this question without being a disservice to those that have purchased the course because what that course does is it goes into the recent um, the, the data recent for the Millie Makers from 2021 and any interesting trends that we can glean from that. I want to first start the answer with the fact that you have to realize that the Millie Maker is a 200 to 400,000 entry contest. Um, sometimes more, you know, like this week where we have a $5 Millie Maker, there's almost how many entries are in that thing? Like 900,000? Like 1.1. 1.2 million entries. So you start thinking about the, those size of contest. Oh, they're gonna fill going it to too. have to be doing. That is I know, nuts. dude. It's insane. We're already. It's crazy. You have to think about like what? Oh, man, how do I answer this? Because <laughs> the answer to this question involves aspects from both of my courses um, this year. So without giving away too much from those courses i will just leave it at your decision making process has to depend on the payout structure of the contest you're playing the size of the contest you're playing and um and the assumptions that you can make based on field tendencies with whatever contest you're playing let me actually 
I'll just leave I, it I'll, at I'll that. jump in here too because I haven't read that course. Um, so because I don't play the millimaker, so I don't really bother. So I didn't really, I haven't dug into that one yet. Uh, so I cannot, I will not spoil anything. But I will jump in with this and say two things. One, people tend to underrate the viability of onslaught builds in DFS, and that applies to full slate. That applies to showdown. Um, people underrate under under uh underrate the likelihood of a team one team just stomping on another and still viable dfs scores coming out of it and you see this in our very sharp community uh people say whoa how can you play how can you play that team who would you bring it back with and the answer is you don't have to right like i think you could viably play you know a raven stack or a colt stack um and not bring it back with someone from the other team if years of data that tells us that in blowout games in the nfl uh team doing the blowing out uh, even if the other team is non-competitive like the team doing the blowing out actually tends to see above average fantasy production because someone's scoring those touchdowns while they're getting to that blowout phase this isn't the nba right in the nba if uh, a team is up by 25 points their starters probably aren't going to check back in in the fourth quarter and in the nba uh, points scored is so contingent on minutes played um, that you know you if the guys don't play the last bit of the game like they're not racking up points and not hitting their ceilings. That's not true in the NFL. So you can play onslaught builds. Second is, well, you want to think about why we stack, right? The reason why we do stacking is not to maximize our ceiling. And that's something that a lot of people don't quite get about the concept of stacking and correlation. We don't stack to maximize our ceiling. We stack to reduce variance. We stack to reduce the number of things that have to go right for our roster to put up a good score. So, you know, in most weeks, if you go look at the optimal roster, like you, you there, there are sites that publish this where you can find the, the, the highest possible scoring roster that you could have built that week. It's generally uncorrelated. It might have a quarterback and one pass catcher, but generally it's uncorrelated. And so you know, it's just a random, guy, random selection of guys. But we can't build like that because we're never going to land on the right selection of guys. There's a million possible roster combinations, right? And so we correlate uh, because we're trying to reduce variance. We want to re reduce the number of things that needs to go right. So... And to, to echo Hila's point, it depends on the tournament you're playing, right? Like, if you're playing a small field tournament, um, I generally will stack in small field because I don't care as much about the ceiling. I care about the reducing the number of things that need to go right to as few as possible for my roster to put up a good score because I don't need an elite score um, to win a tournament, to win a small field tournament. In a large field tournament... I think you can throw some of those rules out the window a bit and say, you know, I will not, I, I, I'm okay not having a bring back. And when I do MME, I usually don't force bring backs. And they're somewhat situational depending on the team in the game. Some teams are notorious for keeping their foot on the gas late, if, even if they're up by a ton. Some teams are notorious for pulling back if they're not, if they're, if they're up by a lot, or even if they're up by a little. Um, so you have to understand the teams that are involved. But uh, in large field tournaments, what I usually do in labs if I'm doing MME is I'll just set rules that say like, if using Justin Herbert boost the boost the projection of Raiders. Uh, actually, with that particular one, I would force a bring back I think from a Raider. But um, you know, if using Lamar Jackson, I'd boost the pro I'd boost the projection of Elijah Moore. I wouldn't force a Jet bring back, right? If that makes sense. Right. Next question. This is from Smooth Jimmy Apollo. Playing around with Cousin Thielen Jefferson Block, bringing back Jones and Dylan together. Struggling with the thought process of this in a large field tourney. Although it limits ceiling, does the expected limited ownership pay off 
with a low percentile outcome, that majority of Green Bay offense flows through these two. All right. Um, yeah, I know. I think we're both think. thinking with one of the others going to jump in. Um, I would say my play style is such that I would not play that roster in a large field tournament because I do think it limits your ceiling a fair bit. Um, and it, but it, what it does is that roster has a lot of floor. Essentially, you're, you know, it's, you're. You're capturing, you know, you're likely capturing all the scoring uh, or the bulk of the scoring for the Vikings through the air. You're assuming the Packers go, you know, score through the ground or through receiving touchdown to Jones. Um, so I think that's a reasonable high floor roster. Now, is it possible it's a high ceiling roster? It could be, right? Like you need a really weird game environment for the, you know, you need something like both Jones and Dylan score rushing touchdowns early. The Packers run for 250 combined yards. They both hit the bonus. Um, you know, maybe Jones also gets one through the air. And then the Vikings are throwing like crazy, uh, going, you know, Ariel to catch up. And both Thielen and um, Ann Jefferson hit the 100-yard bonus. And Kirk Cousins throws for 400 yards and four touchdowns or something like that, right? Like, to win the Millie Maker, like, that's probably the kind of scoring you'd need. So if you think if you think that there's a reasonable chance of you know of that kind of outcome of you know 400 passing yards for Kirk Oh yeah, more technical difficulties. Uh yeah. <laughs> we'll move on to the next question, Aaron. Yeah, I'll jump on to the Hi. next one here. This one's from uh, G Heller. Sorry. I was tabbing oh, around is. and I tabbed the I closed Discord. <laughs> so fat figured user error. Anyway, nice. I say, if you think that's a reasonable outcome, if you think that's or if you think that's an outcome that is likely enough that you're willing to put five bucks on it for the millimaker, I'm not gonna tell you you're wrong, right? The out the likelihood of that outcome is awfully low, but it's not zero. And if you're willing to bet on it, then you know, I, I think it's, it'd be very it'd be a very unique construction to start with. All right, this one's from G. Heller. Could you talk about naked hurts? Everyone is going to force a receiver. I'm thinking taking uh, his spread out passing and running and don't force a receiver. He's one of the few QBs I like naked. Your thoughts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. general rule of thumb is you can play QBs who have a lot of rushing equity and who also have a somewhat spread out offense naked. I think it's harder to play... It'd be hard for me to want to play Kyler naked this week because his offense is look his his pa- his reception or his receiving core is looking very condensed. Um, but I think you could play Trey Lance naked. I think you can play Hertz naked. I think you can play Lamar naked. Not because his offense isn't condensed, because his his two primary pass catchers like Andrews is really expensive, and so it's possible that they you know he Lamar could easily get there without dragging someone along with him. So it depends on the team. You have to look at like the whole context of like the receivers, how condensed they are, what their prices are, but. For the most part, I think like, and again, if I'm doing, if I'm running things in labs, uh, I will set rules like if Jalen Hurts boost the projection of AJ Brown, uh, Dallas Goddard, and Devonta Smith by 15%. Like that's that's how I play that kind of a, that kind of roster. And with that, that is going to do it for week one. 
The Slate, the inner circle only, again, open to everybody for week one. If you like what you hear, if you're not inner circle member, highly, highly recommend jumping over to the inner circle subscription. You're going to get access to all the bonus content in the scroll. You're going to get access to all of the additional teaching that JM does throughout the week. And you're going to get access to this inner circle only podcast that is held every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern. For X, wait, for Aaron, for JM, wait. I'm highly. I have one oh, last thing, if I can really quick. Uh, ownership, I just want to let you all know what to expect for our ownership projections this week. I'm going to run uh, a final Saturday night run of ownership projections. It'll probably be posted up to the site and up to labs in maybe three hours. That's going to start to include a lot more of the strategy notes. Uh, and then tomorrow morning, we'll have one or possibly two, depending on news, uh, rounds of updates to ownership projections. So if you're wondering, just keep an eye there. That's what you can expect as far as timing. That's it. Thanks for hanging out with us. That's going to do it, fam. We will see you in Discord, and we will see you top of the leaderboards tomorrow. See ya.